Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, a man who I hope would never have to be executed by gas chamber or any really any method for that matter, my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Wow. Yeah, hi. I would agree with that hope. I <laughs> definitely don't want to be executed for any reason by any manner. Right. <laughs> that would be yeah. preferable. <laughs> you haven't blown anybody up, have you, in the last few years? or anything? Not purposely or even accidentally. <laughs> I think I'm okay. <laughs> okay so good. far, so good. Good. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, we are in the midst of our watch through the Grishamverse, and uh, we're starting to get to the tail end of his novels-turned-movie filmography with this quiet 1996 adaptation of The Chamber, starring Chris O'Donnell and Gene Hackman. Before we get into our big conversation, this is your official spoiler reminder that we will be talking in-depth about this movie, as we always do, so feel free to listen if you don't care about any of that, or you have seen the movie and just want to be part of the conversation. Otherwise, get out of here. You know what you need to do. All right, here we go. I wanted to open up with a little bit of like trivia. This is from a BBC interview back in 2006. It's not like, like, here's a question. Can you answer it? This is more just like fun fact trivia. Sorry. It's oh, not okay. Like trivia gotcha. I was ready pizza. to like, you know, bet Buzz my in. life savings. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Okay. <laughs> so back in t- uh, 2006, there was a BBC interview and John Grisham liked this adaptation of his novels the best. And as of 2006, we haven't seen anything beyond everything that we've seen. So there's nothing, I think, past 2003. So he's seen everything. And that kind of kind of threw me for a minute because that's obviously <laughs> not my opinion. Not where you would put it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm not the author. And, uh, you know, I'd love for us to be able to interview him and just ask, you know, why, what it, what is it about it that kind of makes it stand out. But what about you, Aaron, as someone who's read some of the novels? Obviously, I'm going to ask you if you've read the book. And whether you have or not, where do you think this lands in terms of the movies that we've covered so far? Have not read the book. And the only reason I could think that he would say that is as being the author of the book, perhaps it does maybe hold closest to his novels. Although, from what I remember of A Time to Kill, The Firm, and The Pelican Brief, they don't stray very far you know, maybe they get a little truncated, like every single film adaptation in the history of movies has pretty much had to do, other than like, I don't know, Horton Saves a Who, because they've got to cut stuff out in order to, to condense the story a bit. But yeah, I mean, maybe that's the reason I'm a little bit shocked by this piece of knowledge as well. I, I think yeah, it would love. It makes me want to reach out to John Grisham, and and so we can ask him that question. Like, why? What is it about this one? Uh, for me, no, I'm probably gonna be end up closer to where you're at, and it's not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I did enjoy it overall. There's something about the John Grisham film adaptations, and it's the reason we chose this. I think is because we knew there were gonna be a few of these movies we hadn't seen, but. We like the basic genre that these are like set in this legal thriller idea, crime and punishment, lawyers, whatever this kind of mix is. It's usually good for a somewhat entertaining story. And sometimes you get to be really wowed. This wasn't one of those times for me. So, I mean, good for it for John. I mean, I guess I guess they did a, a bang up job. Yeah, I think if you're going to be a prolific author, it's good to have good and bad or positive and negative or however you want to describe it. I mean, not every piece of art that you put out is going to be wowed by your audience. The fact is, this is what makes art so art's subjectivity so great is that you can have pieces that hit on all cylinders for a person, whether it's a movie or a painting or a song. And for others, it's like, meh, okay. And I think you can spread that out to genres as well. I mean, you and I have had conversations about the types of genres that we enjoy. And horror is not my thing, but I've come around to more wider 
suspense bleeding into horror type movies, which I'm appreciative of, of, uh, of you pulling me into that and the, you know, just the podcast doing it because I can appreciate the, you know, movies like the shining and the Blair witch project for what they are. And then there are Westerns that I just can't get behind as much in the classic sense, as much as I can in the modern sense. So I will avoid a John Wayne Western, but I will fully embrace a modern day or an updated version of 310 to Yuma. Or so, True Grit. Yeah. Or True Grit. Yeah. So I, I think that it's important to be able to, and I think we do this anyway, just to appreciate an author, his variety and the way in which he says, look, I'm just going to write what I know. So I think when I watched this movie, I felt like it was very much a 90s movie. This felt 90s. It didn't feel timeless by any means. It didn't feel as heavy as A Time to Kill, but it definitely felt heavier than The Client. Like this isn't a movie I'd catch on Lifetime as an original Lifetime movie. It had some weighty elements to it. I think I, I came away, Aaron, thinking with the cast being so small, I mean, there were only about three or four real players in the movie. Main players, yeah. Great. Yeah. And other other adaptations we have more than that at least feels like like the firm feels really big because you have a whole law firm that's doing something even though you've got mitch and you know a couple others that are sort of leading the pack this feels quieter a time to kill feels a little bit bigger because you've got a big legal team the pelican brief feels bigger because you've got a whole bunch of different folks trying to get their hands on this document and so when you get to something like the chamber You've got to really, really execute when it comes to the cast. And I like Chris O'Donnell and I like Gene Hackman. And I think that they bring a really good sentiment to the to the movie. But I was also in my research looking at, you know, who else was attached to this. At one point, Brad Pitt was attached to this to play Sam. Uh, or not Sam, huh? it was Adam. Oh, and okay. I was, like, I was like, wow, that was yeah, sorry. a twist. My, my bad. Yeah, Adam. And I believe that the character of uh who was it raleigh wedge was written for jack nicholson and we had jack nicholson in mind so had you put those two actors in there at a time when you know i'd seen jack nicholson as the joker and i knew him from other things that he is unhinged in some capacity i would see him in that in that kind of a bulky role and to see brad pitt as this lawyer grandson combo it would be really interesting because brad pitt has had some staying power now i'm seeing this is 2022 eyes and i think that i would as a biased person say mm, that probably would have been a, a more interesting movie to have those actors but then again what if chris o'donnell had become like a brad pitt would i've looked at this differently like i do matthew mcconaughey matthew mcconaughey has blown up and so there's a part of me that's like because i know mcconaughey as an older actor and i've appreciated everything he's done since a time to kill does that elevate the movie for me and i think it does i mean a time to kill is a great movie anyway but there's something about knowing the future of an actor that sort of establishes credibility early on and i got to be thinking about the not event horizon but what was the what was the movie series about the accidents that would happen perpetually it spawned like three it was kind of a final destination thank you all of the actors in that movie, I remember talking about this, and I felt like these were like the B versions of the big stars of the 90s. And so I did. I kind of got that vibe from The Chamber. I'm thinking, oh, oh not wow. that Gene Hackman's a slack. He's not. I mean, he's in three of these John Grisham movies, for goodness sakes. Yeah. But I felt like that with Chris O'Donnell. He's coming off of uh, Batman and Robin. At one point, Val Kilmer is actually attached to to play Adam Hall. And I was like, wow, are we getting a whole Batman reunion here with with Kilmer and Nicholson I mean what's this crazy stuff going on so for me I watched this movie and I can appreciate it for what it's doing and I think it I think it appropriately tackles the issues that it presents it doesn't feel cheap it really feels like it plays through and like a time to kill it really kind of creates some ethical dilemmas as we end that I just felt it was a little bit of a lighter flavor than a time to kill and if if I get those kinds of ethical dilemmas, I think I want something a little bit heavier for my taste. Didn't make the movie any less appealing. It's just one that I feel like was sort of a 
maybe a single or possibly a double as opposed to like a triple or a home run for me. Still a solid plot, solid cast uh, all the way through. No real hiccups with it. No real like, oh, that shouldn't have happened. But uh, but overall, it was, yeah, it was okay. It was okay. Yeah, so that's really intriguing alternate casting. It's one of my favorite segments. It's something I've honestly always thought about we should steal but I hate just straight up plagiarization. So we'd have to kind of call it something different, even though it was the exact same thing. But I probably mentioned it before on the ringer podcast, when they do the rewatchables, Bill Simmons, one of his categories is casting what ifs. And it's just always one of the most fascinating segments to me for this very reason, because you're like, Hmm, Ooh, interesting. Like it works really great with rewatchable movies too. Cause it's typically stuff you've seen over and over and over. And you can kind of, then it gives it a new spin to think of it with different folks. But I like, these choices and i think for one thing with regards to raleigh barely in the movie i think that would have been a ballsy and expensive choice and that would have elevated even just putting jack nicholson in there as that character for even a brief cameo maybe you expand his role by a scene maybe two but even just the two interactions he has the hardcore one at the rally with chris o'donnell's character and then the one with his brother, with Gene Hackman, uh, in prison right before the end, right? If you did, you know, because Raleigh is a secret to us for most of this movie. If that had shown up and it would have, we, you know, all of a sudden it's it's Jack Nicholson, like, oh my goodness. I mean, the power behind that, just because we knew who Jack Nicholson was at the time, yes. I mean, elevates this movie tenfold immediately. And then the dilemma of Chris O'Donnell <laughs> and the idea of a Brad Pitt so Pitt would have already done what? I don't know the dates, but like this is a round fight club and seven time frame. So yeah, if you would have put Pitt in this, it would it would have changed the dynamic completely. I, I think he's a phenomenal choice. Whoever even considered him, like we've seen him in enough now, like he could play the wide-eyed idealistic questioning young kid but with a gravitas and a grit and a just built-in kind of demeanor that chris o'donnell simply does not have it's not i don't know it's his fault he did doesn't have it man um i don't think it's bad acting just who he is right he's a baby face period that's he can't fake that he can't act the out of the baby face and he did this right after Batman Forever, like you were pointing out. And it was like just a light bulb went off when I read that myself because I was like, oh, it's it's almost like Robin minus the suit and jokes. You know, it, it feels like character is just that character. And he was – I kept trying to talk myself into him being good or acceptable. And he was tolerable. But I think he holds this back. And I understand why he was chosen because he's supposed to be playing this kid who's lost. He's just, he's supposed to be out of his depth, right? And like we talk about in every one of these episodes, super idealistic lawyer who wants the truth and is, you know, at on the prowl and on the fight for good. And he's doing this pro bono, but there's a slightly other motives in play that are kind of familial or personal related it's the same character every single time. And I think he fits what you would look if you were writing down what you wanted from this character and you were like taking it to a casting decision. I understand how you could on paper go, oh, my gosh, Chris O'Donnell checks all of these boxes. But. Yes, it feels to me like he's sort of out of his depth. And frankly, I just don't think he has the cojones, the quality, the the talent to stand up with Gene Hackman in these scenes, man. Hackman is fantastic in this movie. Hackman is so good in this movie. This is maybe, in my opinion, like the most underrated Hackman performance because I've never heard of it brought up before and i've never seen the movie but i think he is as good as he's pretty much ever been in this movie he really is awesome man and like the movie doesn't rise to his level of quality overall so that, and that part yeah. was a bummer no i think 
I think in a lot of ways, I agree with you. When you look at Chris O'Donnell, that babyface approach works as a grandson, less so as a lawyer. Because I think what Great you have to have. And look at Mitch McDeer. I mean, Mitch McDeer is, he he's, you can get behind him because from the jump, the charisma of Tom Cruise, even a young Tom Cruise, is what attracts you to this hotshot lawyer that doesn't know anything about the law, except he knows a lot on paper and has to kind of get street smart with the law as the movie goes on. And so we believe from the very beginning, because the movie basically tells us, hey, he's credible. He's absolutely credible. Even though he's new, he's credible. When it comes to a time to kill, Matthew McConaughey has that sort of gravitas. He's got that charisma where he's still young, but he is. To- we're told that he has a few wins, some losses here. And I think that's where the client sort of fell through for me because we didn't get enough time with the hotshot young lawyer that wins more than she loses. That's all we get. We get that that one initial scene with her and that's it. And then we move her into an like an espionage thriller moment where she's hunting down a body. And I think that's as I'm walking through all these movies, what I'm attracted to as a as a as a spectator, as an audience, is I need to understand that the actor or actress playing these parts has got to have the charisma to carry a skillful lawyer, even if you're new, even if you're idealistic, and also be able to carry that other component. And in this case, the challenge was to find an actor who could carry the lawyer aspect of it, as well as the grandson. And if you told me that the grandson aspect of this was what was going to be pushing the movie, I would have been fine with that. Because I think that in that sense, Chris O'Donnell working through these issues was a good component of the movie. I think it's what helped kind of fuel my involvement and my entertainment with it. I didn't get a lot of law stuff. And it wasn't that I didn't get a lot of legalese. I didn't get a lot of courtroom drama. I mean, this is definitely one that goes back to that little to no courtroom drama. But I will say this, unlike the client, the courtroom stuff that we did get was compelling. It wasn't, aha, gotcha. But it was using some law stuff in order to elevate the grandson aspect of it. So case in point, the appeal that he makes is really great. And the reasons he makes for letting Sam have a stay of execution are fantastic. But they sound to me like an like a grandson appealing on behalf of his grandfather, not a lawyer using his gravitas to manipulate. And I say that in a very, very appropriate way. I mean, opening and closing statements, they're very much manipulative tactics. It's it's part of what makes watching lawyers do what they do in the courtroom so compelling. Is like, how can they get a jury to listen to them beyond just the rules and regs of everything in between that kind of trial sandwich, right? And um, I don't think we got that. I think what we got was what felt almost like a helpless grandson that had gotten swept up into all this emotionally and was like, all right, I'm going to use the law that I know to make a, an appeal on behalf of my grandfather. In some ways it's emotionally great, not from a lawyer standpoint. I think from a lawyer standpoint, it feels a little bit weak. Like he's just out of law school. Like he doesn't know about the law and he's like, Hey, this appeal thing I could, you know, let me, let me look at this. He wasn't, he wasn't grandstanding. He wasn't, citing places and and citing other cases that to me would have made him feel a lot more uh appealing and a lot more convincing as a lawyer (laughs) pun intended appealing yes more appealing there was plenty of appealing patrick that's what this movie is all about is appealing uh no i completely (laughs) agree with you it's funny because the law is talked about a lot in this one the appeals are talked about like they are a constant thing that is hanging in the background and and it's what the story kind of is hinged on is it's almost like you could plot it right it's like we're gonna go after this appeal and then the next portion of the movie is moving towards this appeal and then moving towards this appeal and and this and this and this but we only get the one big real courtroom scene again and i don't understand what the heck the problem with this is why do these movies feel like you only can give us one big courtroom scene 
And this one was such a failure to me on the back of A Time to Kill, not because I don't think it was well done or well written. I actually think it was both of those things. And I think that Chris O'Donnell actually pulled it off really well. But the choice to score the scene instead of letting him just talk killed it for me, Patrick. It was this melodramatic TV episode, like serial TV, like episode of Law and Order or Criminal Minds moment or whatever is what it felt like to me. And it just, it drowned out the power of if it was just this one dude in a law room or a law room in a courtroom speaking about the law, finally making this appeal, you know, for the third or whatever attempt it was trying to find a loophole and some sort of reason to get him off. And it was very much like a time to kill. Cause it's, again, it's also emotional base. Like what we'll talk about, like how we feel about the case, I'm sure, but he's trying to get around what, is essentially what we think is right there in front of our faces with regards to the truth and the facts of the case. They're trying, oh, maybe he's insane, or maybe he was indoctrinated and it's not his fault. Valid points, great things to think about. I love that. And so I just wish that that scene had not been underscored by the score. (laughs) It was was a common theme for me in this whole movie, dude. I, I thought... You said it didn't – You, I think when you were talking at the beginning, you said something about it didn't quite like feel like a Lifetime movie yet. But boy, was it close. The schlocky flashback sequences, every single one, take them out. Take them out. Like just just tell me those things. I hated them personally. And, and they also, I think, took me out of the movie some because they felt so – fake and cheesy and over-directed and produced in a way that just was inconsistent with the drama. What I loved about this movie was when it was O'Donnell and Hackman talking in his, when it was Silence of the Lambs, when it was doing the Silence of the Lambs relationship thing, that's when I liked it. Yeah, when I look at this movie and I think about those components, what... I find disappointing is not the lack of courtroom drama, but the effect of the courtroom on the rest of the movie. There was a moment early on in the film that I was like, okay, this is going to be good. When he gets the, I think it's the district court denial, and he has that kind of table set up on his on his computer, this digital thing, and he's got like almost like a program. It's like, denied, denied. I thought the movie was going to be these series of conversations that he and Sam are going to have back back and forth. We're going to get more information like we do, but he's going to constantly go through and eventually check off all the bot, you know, denial, denial, like all these pathways to get to a potential appeal. That would be really interesting. And I think the challenge for a movie like this is that we've already had the trial. That's where I think you're already dealt a pair of twos when you're playing. Um, oh, I can't get my analogy. When you're playing uh, Texas Hold'em, you just, you don't really have much to work with. Appeals, I guess on paper or maybe in actuality, are just not that exciting because we're not trying to get Sam out of jail. We're trying to just lessen his sentence where he's not going to be gassed and instead have life in prison. And so that component has to have a lot more weight to it. Like, why would I even care that Sam spends the rest of his life in jail versus getting killed? And I think what the movie tries to do is it tries to make him compassionate. Where I think the movie fails is that he's put in prison in like 1980 and he spends or 82. Yeah, he spends the next weird timeline, 14 years building relationships with Bo Jackson as Sergeant Clyde Packer. Out of nowhere, and yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so apparently, apparently Bono Sam that. after that, right? So yeah, it's just it's <laughs> Bono's acting, it's Bono's acting <laughs> at least once, right? But I thought that that was an interesting component because a lot of what Adams' appeal centered around was this idea of re- reformation. What was Sam like in those fifteen years? And we get a little bit of that, Aaron, when he's walking down. The Green Mile, essentially, when he's going to the chamber, he's shaking hands with all these inmates who I never met. Like, what we get at the very end is essentially what I think should have been 
at least a significant component of that. Like if you're going to flash back to stuff or if you're going to show me other things, show me relationships he's built beyond just Sergeant Packer. That was good. I actually enjoyed that. I enjoyed the fact that, you know, Packer is explaining (laughs) probably to Adam's dismay why Sam is not insane, why he's in her right mind, why he has a conscience and stuff. I, I will say this from a from a production standpoint, I thought the sunrise could have been a little bit slower. It was a little bit too fast for my taste. You know, he's he's out there on the on the roof and then the sun just comes up in like 15 seconds. I'm like, that's a really fast sunrise. I mean, are you in a hurry, son? Because this guy's not. He's not going to be gassed for another, <laughs> you know, three days. But I think that that aspect of it was what I really wanted more of because I wanted to get Sam in my heart. I wanted to understand him to a point where when we get his execution, I'm like, no. And I wanted to be the one running out. But apparently that that was a big secret. That was an emotional secret that I didn't get because all I got was a couple of scenes where it looked like Sam was, okay, I'm reformed now because I've had significant conversations with my grandson and my daughter. That wasn't enough for me. I think you need more of that. You need those conversations. You need more interaction with other inmates. You need to find out what is it about Sam in prison that's made him so um, saint-like, or at least to a point where he's impacted those around him. I, I just, I didn't get that. And I think that's where, mm. by, we got, by the time we get to the end, I'm like, okay, yeah, you were gassed. Sorry, Saint, or Adam, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't yeah. convince the governor. So there it is. And he's dead. <laughs> and that's kind of how I was left. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And it's a because that moment is a weird choice if you are not going to give more context for it. It's almost a lot of the decisions in this I would put down to maybe poor directorial choices or the ones that weren't cohesive enough. And then you get some great stuff. Like I mean, I think that that whole sequence from the every bit of it of the final scenes from him getting his bowl of Eskimo pies, which I had to Google to find out what that was. And also his thermos of French roast coffee, which I find to be fascinating. I was like, wow, this is not the way that last meals have been sold to me by media previously. I didn't know that someone would literally bring you a big giant wooden bowl with some ice and some ice cream sandwiches and a thermos of coffee. And that's your last meal. Like this dude isn't sitting down with a knife and a fork and getting a steak and, you know, kind of how we tend to romanticize the idea of the last meal. This was not like that. So I appreciated that. But just that and the walk and the way that the whole final scene is shot uh, with the chamber. It's I mean, I got like chills or like I was feeling things during that, even if it wasn't necessarily for Sam just the way the filmmaking worked well for me. But I am sort of, there's no way to talk about this without just kind of getting into the whole idea of Sam because on some level, this movie, I wrote this down in my notes. You know that meme where it's like, uh, I forget how it starts, but I think it was like The Incredibles is Pixar. What if superheroes had feelings? And um, Toy Stories, what if toys had feelings? And Cars is what if cars had feelings? Have you seen that meme where it just goes down the whole list of Pixar movies and it's like, what if this had feelings? And you can basically do it with every movie. What if dinosaurs had feelings? <laughs> you know, what if souls had feelings? It was, and I, I wrote this down. I was like, what if racists had feelings? And that's what it felt like <laughs> to me at the yeah. beginning. And I have a real hard time with this story. And I think that's by design. And I'm, okay with living uncomfortably in how I felt about these characters because I think it was sort of realistic that we aren't necessarily cheering for Sam and especially in regards to like a redemptive arc there's so many these are the parts I liked about it was I'm very torn on everything about this man so as he's portrayed to us he is very racist like from the start and when we get the backstory that finally is pitched by his grandson adam about the indoctrination i'll be honest when he first brought that up i rolled my eyes and i was like oh my gosh are you really going to try to pull this emotional 
you know, plea and and get get it over on us and like we're supposed to forgive him for that. No, but man, there's a lot of truth to that. And and I like the way that that was shown to us because that kind of is transcendent. It's not just racism, but that's how hate like completely reads itself over generations. It it is passed down. It is learned. Now, can people be born evil? Yes, I believe that. But generally speaking, hatred of others is not something you just come out with, right? It's something that you experience and then you you feel like you latch on to that. And he had a point. This guy didn't know anything else. He was going to clan rallies and being literally indoctrinated, the word he uses, at seven years old. Like what at what point does your brain understand right from wrong if you're taught this way so again i don't think it's full absolution i certainly don't but i thought that it was really compelling drama to have this character and that's part of why i think that performance is so so good because i was all over the place on this guy trying to figure out how i felt about him whether or not i was even willing to give him the benefit of the doubt if it came down to finding out it wasn't on purpose like does that yeah. change anything in my mind yeah so there's there's two components of that that i latch on to one i would love to see a prequel of this movie that just really goes down the history of sam you know how did he get the way he was what choices did he make what choices were made for him to get to that point and that's the second aspect of this that you hit on he's making choices as he gets older you can be told so many things, so many things, so many things. And honestly, indoctrination doesn't have to be hate. It can just be anything. I mean, you think about uh, 2020, the year of COVID and masks. When masks started getting lifted, my son had really not strong issues, but he had some anxiety about not taking his like kind of gator thing that he would wear to class, mainly because he didn't know if other people were going to be wearing them and they became optional. So we had to, in order to kind of break him of that, we basically said we threw them away. And so we kind of had to be forced to not wear one. And after a day or two, he was fine. But I think there's something about getting used to an idea and having it reinforced with another idea, whether that's whatever the motive is. The fact is, if you're told a piece of information and you're told to be to do an action and you're reinforced by because this, because this, because this, and then you start seeing other people around you that you trust that you are uh, connected to doing the same thing as a 10 year old, I'm totally going to do that. I'm not going to see anything wrong with holding a rally and saying, you know, for the sake of the perfection of the white man, for the sake of America, the fact is if you look at with just completely like naive eyes, the fact is from a, from a clan's point of view, it wasn't just about black people. It was about Jews and it was about homosexuals. Like, they were about like the purity of a race. And on some level, even from a from a Nazi point of view, that's what Hitler was. He wanted to preserve the pure a purity of a race. And there's a sick idealism in that that is kind of appealing, but you have to convince the people that you're talking to that anyone other than you is not you and is less than you. And that's where the hatred comes in. That's when you start devaluing a person because they have a different sexual lifestyle or because they have a different religion, specifically Jews, or if they are a different color, that's when I think your conscience as you get older has to start thinking, wait a minute, what is it about these people that I've been taught that doesn't quite line up? And that's where I think the conflict comes in because at some point you're not 10 years old anymore. At some point you have to be accountable for your actions and I think what the movie does well is the bombing that they keep referring back to with those two kids. Sam didn't know. He did not know that there were kids. And he thought it was just a bomb. Boom. You know, just going to blow up a building. And so I think that gives That's us a all. level of, uh, I say, yes, obviously with all this stuff, right? Rhetorically <laughs> or, um, I don't know, hyper hyperbolically. I, I think when you, when you look at his perspective, it brings up this really interesting concept of subjective moralism. 
case in point, I was going to take my son to a movie. And I'm going to say this on the air. So when people hear this, they can come arrest me. I sneak candy into the movie theater because I'm not paying $8. Oh, what? I sneak big bottles of water. Gas chamber right here. Take get, me out. Get out. Can you appeal? Can you appeal on my behalf? Because I got I'm about you. to explain why I do it. Right. I got you. Took my you son to a movie. Your you. dad yeah. taught you that. <laughs> I was indoctrinated because I don't have any money in my wallet. That's what indoctrinates me. <laughs> less than able to. But I, I was taking my son to a movie and we were stopping by Walgreens. And I was going to say, let's get some candy for the movie. And as we were leaving, or as we were walking around, I said, just make sure you keep it in your pocket. He goes, why, daddy? I had to tell him that it's not okay to bring candy into the movie theater. And you know what I did at that point? I said, let's put the candy back, son, because I really don't want to teach you that lesson that it's okay to bring candy into a movie theater, even though at one point I actually snuck him into the theater, but that's a different story altogether with justification. (laughs) But the fact is, Aaron, that story that I just told you has a level of subjective morality to it. I set the rules because I feel like I should not have to pay $8 for candy. In the same regard, Sam grows up as a 10-year-old from a a 10-year-old's point of view thinking the world is a certain way and I need to defend it. I need to defend my family. I need to defend my community. So on some level, you can't necessarily argue with that. However, there are actions that he took that are (laughs) illegal and it is wrong to kill people. So they are definitely immoral. (laughs) So. When you see somebody being lynched as an older person and you have a conscience and you've learned more things, you've got to take some responsibility. And I think that's where the movie is trying to get to this conflict of like, is he all guilty or is he just guilty? And that's what I think Adam is trying to do with this appeal saying, look, I'm not saying set the guy free. I'm saying give him life. And by the way, he's actually making a difference in prison. So I think that's the reinforcement. I don't know if I like that because I think that creates a kind of a weird sainthood with with sam that i don't want but at the same time i don't quite uh, disagree with either so i I can't really tell where i'm at with that that's it i mean i'm glad because we are in the same place that's what i was saying It, it, it that i think that there's something that is like worthwhile about this movie because it does that because it makes you feel in that uncomfortable conflicted space of I don't know, like, it's not a movie to me that is necessarily trying to have a, make a statement one way or the other. And I, I appreciated that and that aspect of it. But there's also this idea in the movie that, first of all, everything about how you watch this movie is going to be colored, I think, by your personal opinion on capital punishment. It's impossible for it not to, right? (laughs) I mean... I tried to take my own mindset out of it as much as I could and not let that color how I viewed this, but it's, it's complicated. It's very hard to do that. Um, but one thing that I kept coming back to in the end, and I'll admit, like I did linger on this movie for a while. I kept thinking about it, trying to figure out what I was supposed to feel or what I did feel um, and clarify it. And one thing was, he didn't kill the guys in the bomb. The bomb is made clear that it was Raleigh's doing unbeknownst to Sam. He changed it. He knowingly made sure that the uh, Jewish attorney and his kids were targeted so that they would be killed. So even if we didn't hold Sam accountable for that, Sam, it is told to us, unbeknownst to the courts and anybody else in cold blood murdered his neighbor for no reason shot him with a shotgun in front of his kids and killed him because he was black basically so there is no way (laughs) that i can get to if i start myself from a place of accepting that capital punishment is on the table there's no way i can get to a place where i don't like where i forgive or or where i can wipe out the didn't murder people in the bomb part because there is still a murder in play. Like the guy's still a murderer at the end of the day. Yes. And so, yeah. and so yes, I agree. And my personal standpoint is it should always be about reformation and that it, pretty hardcore against capital punishment in 99% of cases probably. But I think that there are elements of this person that are worthy of keeping alive 
and that he is at the point in his life where he is no threat to be a harm to anyone else right and so that happens and i think you could get to the same coda of this movie and the movie's point in my opinion if it didn't have a i don't think it has a message per se but maybe this is the message if there is one and that is the cycle of violence is broken or the cycle of hate and learned hate is broken that's the the whole kind of ending theme is that when sam dies the the daughter and the grandson the line has been broken and none of that family past exists moving forward because they're they've got all this trauma and they they can let it go and so i don't know that you need to kill him purposely to accomplish that like i think it could happen whether he died or not you know either way raleigh's getting caught so yeah, yeah. It, it's a. Uh, I mean it's more dramatic this way for sure yeah. from a cinematic point of view i mean you could go another angle and have him get released and then he and red from shawshank redemption could go to yeah well, i mean L can't help but think great. about that movie yeah yes <laughs> yeah wouldn't and that that's be an ironic like, twist yeah black and that's white what guy. makes it so much better is like he's truly innocent right and it's it's about like what happens to him and well not red but sorry andy is but it, it, i don't know it's just yeah i don't know what else to say about so, it yeah so i'm the same way and my opinions on capital punishment aside in the frame of this movie i believe that sam got punishment for not what he did but what he did that nobody knew about and there's this really interesting like ironic twist in that he never found out that the government ha or government wow the governor had his men seize Raleigh Wedge and I guess they arrested him and maybe he'll go to jail or he'll die or something like that. So what we're told is that Raleigh Wedge has been taken into custody, but Sam doesn't know that. So has he been redeemed? No, I don't think so. I think the fact is he's made peace with himself with the stuff that he's doing. And I think that whether he'd been gassed or not, I agree. I think that the cycle would have been broken regardless, but at the same time, if you're going to punish someone for murdering people, punish him for actually murdering people. And so in some twisted way, he did. He got the chamber, not because of the murder of the two kids, but because of the murder of the guy outside his house that apparently nobody found out about. That was something else that I was a little confused. I was like, why did nobody report that? Were they scared? Did they bury the body? I mean, just, I don't know. There was a gap or something. Maybe there was a, a, a some information missing in my uh, copy of the chamber, but I don't know. Maybe they cut that out of the VHS, but not that I was watching a VHS. Anyway, but I think that in the end, justice was served. And I use air quotes there because what is justice? Well, in this case, justice was him getting gassed. And really, he got both. I mean, he got redemption in that he was able to find influence in the other inmates that we didn't get a chance to see a lot of uh, another interesting moment was with him and and sergeant packer when he's talking to packer he says you know i say all that stuff about your people and then packer says you know i get it it's fine i don't know if it was fine but there's an understanding there and i think that that sort of hints at the fact that what he has what he sam has is this sort of blanket statement that all black people are a certain way and the exception to the rule is guys like Sergeant Packer as opposed to being the rule and the exception is the opposite of that. So I think what we we get are some of those hints that he can actually have his cake and eat it too. He can have 15 years of influence, change his heart, and then actually die with a clean conscience, but he still dies. And I think that I agree with that. I agree with the decision that was made. I actually was compelled by the governor's speech that he made that the fact is he did these things and he must be punished. He says, nevertheless, he did these things and he must be punished. I'm not out there with my pickets. I thought this was really ironic and because a time to kill, you still had two sides of the fence of the people for and against. And in this regard, you had the opposite effect where it was just like, yeah, it just it was kind of crazy just to see. Okay, we're gonna get riots in these movies now. Apparently, between like Klansmen and and local 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 people. But but yeah, what, that's that's kind of where I landed with that. 
one other interesting thing I thought was there is that the governor part of it, right, where Sam presumes that what will happen is he will use this whole thing for political leverage. So there's an interesting weird twist here that these records won't be unsealed like they can just not get the truth and and they have to get this rogue FBI agent from the past to find a way around to like open the documents that have the truth that that have Raleigh's name in them it's just massively wild to me that someone could be on death row when these factual documents exist and they're just not allowed to be looked at for some reason for weird, you know, purposes, narrative, like, it feels like a convenience, kind of like the whole thing that you're talking sure. about with the murder. But what I did like or find also interesting from a thought perspective was the governor refuses to grant a stay of, edu- of execution, doing that exactly, and using those files for political leverage. But he makes the case that there is something to be said about the positive outcome from this in how it affects public perception of tolerance of these crimes. And so it's not true, and I don't support this, but I found it intriguing, this line of thinking. And of course, it's very like politicians or snakes or whatever, but even this governor to me seems to be doing something from a place of at least idealistic like positivity like he wants hate crimes to be punished and he wants this to show that they're not going to be soft on these things and there's that's a good thing but it's like how you're doing it through a lie right so you're you're killing someone that's not quite fully guilty of this thing you're using that as you know someone to prop up and so i just like that it's not all neat and and perfectly yeah. kind of set because you you get to kind of decide who you want to agree with at what juncture and how you want to feel about it well, I think that's one of the themes that that Grisham plays with in his books is this idea that when you use the law, you can use it in a way that manipulates somebody in some way. And we can agree that the outcome for bigger picture purposes was good, that hate crimes are now acknowledged as bad and we're going to do something to change them. They come at the expense of a person's life that didn't do the crime that they're being told they committed. Plus, as an audience, we know that this guy killed somebody, so we don't feel as bad. Had we not seen that that moment, had he just been beaten up on the guy and the guy ran away, we probably might feel a little differently, and it would have felt a little bit more deliberate, like, oh, gosh. Well, yeah, you're just using the law to manipulate. Yeah, that's what you do. Courtroom dramas, what make them so great is the ability to manipulate the law to the advantage of whoever is spouting it going back to the firm gene hackman's character coincidentally enough is talking about tax law and he goes you want me to mitch asks him something about this client sunny in uh <laughs> in the caymans and he says you want me to you want me to break the law he says no i want you to do as much as you can to bend it <laughs> before you actually cross that line because the law is there Laws are not made to be broken. In the case of being a lawyer, laws are made to be exploited. And I think that's what's happening here, is the exploitation of law. Throughout a lot of these Grisham adaptations, we see that component exist in terms of, even the Pelican Brief hinted a little bit of this with, okay, if this brief gets out, it's going to be bad for who? Okay, so we need to protect the people that it's going to be bad for, but we still need to use it in a way that's going to give us leverage you know, F and PBS apparently is is the bad guy. So I, I think that's that's something that I'm enjoying about these movies is that component of not that the law is pure, but that it's manipulatable for the purpose of whoever has it in their hands. And I look forward to more of that in terms of the courtroom because I think that's where it plays out a little bit more cleanly as opposed to what we're seeing here, which is sort of a a roundabout way. 
I'm not saying that's where Grisham shines is in the courtroom side. I don't think he does because the movies that we've seen, we've gotten a grand total of maybe 30 to 40 minutes total of courtroom drama. I will say this as a hint, we're going to get a lot more of that in, or a, a good chunk more of that in the next yeah. one, in the rain. Well, both of the next ones, Runaway Jury yes. is literally about a jury. <laughs> so like they right. can't go anywhere. That, despite the title, they can't go anywhere. So it's, yeah. you know. <laughs> Run here, jury. Stay here, jury. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah, overall, it, it it's it's a movie that I think has those components. It has the, it, it's a John Grisham novel is what it is. And I think I think that's, if anything, that's what's going for it is that it has that familiarity that it doesn't feel like a left field uh, story that John Grisham would write. It makes me not want to read all of his stuff because he's so prolific, but there are so many other books that he's written since then that I don't believe are lawyer based. Like, I think there was like four Christmases or some Christmas one. There's that- Christmas with the Cranks and that's got a movie that adaptation. And I was like, uh, uh-uh, we're not adding that to the mix. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll no, cover no. Christmas just for fun, but no. <laughs> but I think this one had to have the FBI component in it because, you know, reasons. It's got because all the other movies have maybe some FBI component to them or whatever. So but, yeah, uh, yeah, I, that's yeah. all. That's all I got, man. That's all I've got. Same here. Good stuff. Conversation. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us, and we hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, this has been fun. We're continuing to to roll through it. I'm excited about the next movie. I will just say this up front: we are covering the Rainmaker, 1997. This is one that. I have no issue watching on repeat. It's it's good. I, 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 I'm I going to enjoy this despite what my counterpart may or may not think. I don't know if you, you've seen this one, haven't you? Yes. I have. Good. Yes. I like it a lot. Good deal. So we're going to have some fun with that. It's got Matt Damon, Danny DeVito, Francis Ford Coppola in the director's chair and in the screenwriter's room there. It's going to be good. I look forward to having that conversation. Aaron, thank you for this one. And we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group very active in both places and would love to chat and if you want to connect with me you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter be sure to tag me in any comments so that i'll be notified and not miss you once again thank you for listening we'll be back soon until then stay positive and keep feeling filmed